0: We own and operate our own network of telescopes all around the world. We have something on the order of 35 observatories with around a little more than 300 sensors that operate all the time. And we typically focus on really anything 8,000 kilometers and above that includes geo satellites, MEO satellites, HEO satellites as their apogee gets high enough for us to do. In emergencies, we'll do LEO stuff, but in general, we don't, we don't do a lot of LEO stuff today, but we own and operate that network. It was funded out of our profits or out of our own pockets, built and developed by us. We wrote the software ourselves, and uh, we saw it as an opportunity to make an impact, number one, which is what our researchers really cared about. They, they saw the gap in sort of the challenges that our geo-satellite customers had, and we decided we wanted to move into that business and sort of meet that gap. Uh, we've learned a lot since we started and we've even started to really refine how we think about space situational awareness or space domain awareness as a, as a problem domain and how that affects our infrastructure and how we focus on what we build how we build it how we deploy it um to do those things but yeah kind of your first question we own it i think the other the other piece is and since we own it we get to focus on the characteristics that we think are important right and those are really market driven mm-hmm. to us so we really focus on, from an infrastructure or a footprint standpoint, availability, having enough sites with enough diversity to make sure that we are always up and running. You know when a customer calls me and invariably it'll be on you know Father's Day at three in the morning, or it'll be on Christmas Eve at midnight, or it'll be on Thanksgiving while I'm watching NFL football, someone will call and say, "Hey, something's wrong. can you help us?" And if the answer is not yes, they don't ever call back. So we started driving our availability metrics early on because of that just critical business need. If they had a problem, we needed to have assets available to go help.
1: It's time for another episode of the Cold Star Project. I'm Jason Kanigan, the founder of Cold Star Technologies, host of the show. And I'm here with Clint Clark, Clinton Clark. He goes by Clint, though. He's the vice president of first impressions at Exo Analytical Solutions. We're going to get into that in a moment, that very interesting title. And he's got a couple different roles there, storyteller. He's got a background in the U.S. Air Force, operations research, space systems, all kinds of things. Uh, and he comes from a uh, business background in uh, commercial property, industry management, while well, waste management, which is a huge company. Uh, even I, in the long distant past, my first um, plant manager job was at a recycling factory and the waste management trucks used to come in and drop off all the time and we just sorted glass metal paper plastics and all that back I had hair back then that's how long ago it was so (laughs) thanks for being here Clint
0: hey thanks Jason for having me it's a pretty small world I uh, uh, rarely run into space professionals who have also worked in the waste industry (laughs) yeah
1: well when you're 26 years old or 25 years old and you want to be a factory manager you got to take you know some of the the dirty jobs, right? So,
0: my cool experience place to America, start. Yeah. When I graduated my MBA, I was all lined up to go to a consulting company, and then mm-hmm. the market imploded in 2008, and uh, ended up taking uh, a sales and marketing job at Waste Management uh, because you still have to do that no matter how bad the economy is. And so, right. building <laughs> business inside there and have a great time. So, uh, it was quite the experience.
1: Well, good to hear. Well, let's, let's crack this first nut here. What the heck is a vice president of first impressions? It's a title you don't normally run into. So.
0: It's a good question. And I agonized over uh, actually making that my, my title one day, Jason, but, uh, but sort of simply put it's, you know, my job is to help the world understand who we are and what we stand for. And so when you put down, you're the head of sales or the head of business development, that that Mm -hmm. tends to take people down one path. But really, you know, we're a small company made up of physicists, engineers, scientists, but mostly just passionate entrepreneurs. And my job is really to help us get our story out, help people understand what we're passionate about, what the technology is that we're developing, what are the implications of that technology. And so it just seemed like a better fit because I find myself on the road all the time meeting you know, interesting people around the world, some of whom someday might become our customer. And my job really is to make a great first impression on them, help them want to learn more about what it is we do and then go from there. And I think that's just a much better description for my role than head of sales.
1: Hmm. Okay. And it, yeah, it relaxes people. They're not, they don't have their guard up. Oh, here comes Clint. He's trying to make me do something. So uh, I've been at sales a long time and then, you know, the word has got a bad rap uh, yeah. and it's, there's, a lot of reasons for that. But, but let's get back to ExoAnalytical. Yeah. Obviously, the word analysis is in there. What does the company do?
0: Yeah, so we're a, we're a little small, uh, space-focused technology company. So we, we focus on three things, really. Uh, the first is modeling and simulation, predominantly for uh, large aerospace companies in the United States and the U.S. Air Force. We do a little bit of missile defense work. And uh, I think we're going to spend most of our time talking about today. We also own and operate a network of telescopes around the world that allows us to uh, track and monitor the behaviors of spacecraft, anything really 8,000 kilometers and higher. The vast majority of that stuff is in geo. I think where your communication satellites are, like TV, that type of stuff.
1: Okay. Well, and we're going to dig into that a little bit. I want to hop back to the long distant past. You were awarded, this is from your LinkedIn profile, and it stood out to me when I was checking through. You were awarded the most outstanding thesis uh, for your master's degree at uh, the Air Force Institute of Technology. So I'm super curious what this is for.
0: Well, first of all, you're gonna make me blush (laughs) because people don't normally bring that up in in polite company. Uh, It was a long time ago. Uh, The long and short of it, Jason, is this. the technical field my technical training is operations research so think network optimization multivariate mm-hmm. statistics op- op- operations research is just the application of those tools to what i'll call real problems uh in this case my thesis was really focused on could you apply those classic operations research techniques to social networks i did this back in 2003 so if you go back into your into your time machine Uh, I think LinkedIn got started in 2002, though nobody really heard of it. I think Facebook came out 2004 timeframe. Twitter was 2006. So this is back before people had an idea of what social networking or social networks were. Uh, If you also look at the clock, you can guess what the U.S. military was focused on in 2003. And so the focus of my research was, could I apply classic optimization techniques to a class of problem that it wasn't designed for? looking at social networks. And network optimization allows you to build roads better, build communications networks better, do supply chains better. It allows you to make them more efficient. It also allows you to, in the case of the Air Force, destroy those things more efficiently. And so my thesis was related to that. How could I understand human or social networks in a way and look at their structure, look at their design and see if you could apply operations research tools to those networks? And the answer, of course, was yes, and I think that's why uh, I, I, was a, I got that award. Um, I, I had a lot of help from a lot of people, so it's pretty cool that you know my name is on a, on a plaque that says I got that, but a lot of folks helped uh, make that possible.
1: Okay, well, very cool, very cool. And yeah, I remember back in that time, and uh, I don't even think I got on Facebook till late. I was probably a late adopter.
0: I was in 2000. yeah. Even yeah. Even, <laughs> wasn't late a doctor to uh it's like oh
1: wait for me so let's let's look at exoanalytic um i had dr marie bajaw on and and a couple other guys uh talking -hmm. about space situational awareness and there's uh, some terms here on the other screen i'm going to read them off because there's several of them and they all seem to like be mushy and overlap and that and i want to get your take on it so we have Different terms being used like space situational awareness, space surveillance and tracking, space traffic management, and now space domain awareness. Surely these cannot be all the same thing, and I'm sure Dr. Jaw would be tearing his hair out. Uh, how, what's your take on it?
0: Well, if you promise not to tell him what I say, I'll let
1: everybody... him... <laughs> well, he'd probably go watch.
0: <laughs> he, he can, uh, he can uh, correct me with the specificity of my <laughs> later. But... I sort of think of them, uh, they are definitely different, but related. And so I'll kind of work from the bottom up for for lack of a better way to describe it. So I'll start with space surveillance and tracking or SST, which I think is the first one you mentioned. Mm. So first, that's predominantly a European term. When I'm overseas, I hear that term used a lot. You don't hear it commonly used in the United States. That's really about taking measurements of objects in space, tasking sensors to go look at them, collecting that data, processing it, and trying to make sense of the motion, the flight of of spacecraft. So if I were to kind of simplify it, think about, you know, fielding telescopes, fielding radars, collecting data from those systems, and getting it into the hands of analysts to go do something. It's really about, from my perspective, it's more of that data collection component. And in my perspective, that's a subset of what we call SSA or space situational awareness, right? When you talk, and, and so that's certainly a much more commonly used term. And it's, uh, it's been a term in the U.S. that's been in vogue for, for many, many years mm-hmm. to describe uh, a discipline where you're taking those measurements and they're, they're for a purpose, right? And, but in addition to taking just measurements from radars and telescopes of spacecraft, you're also so including maybe owner-operator ephemeris data, you're including space weather data, maybe some other sources, and you're trying to build this more holistic understanding of what's going on in orbit around the earth, uh, with a purpose, the really kind of two purposes. One to maintain a catalog of all the things that are up there, but the other is to provide uh, warning services or safety of flight services to the spacecraft that are that are operating so that they don't go bump in the night. Really, and so space situational awareness kind of Today, that's the primary product or service from that discipline is a catalog that's sort of freely available to the world and a set of warnings to operators who participate or who, who reach out to the U.S. Air Force in this case to get warnings when their spacecraft might be in a situation where it's going to get too close to another one. So that's kind of the first two. The next two Uh, space traffic management or STM space domain awareness or SDA. Those are sort of more nouveau reach terms, right? They're, they're more modern terms. Um, and I would just say if you just kind of go from space situational awareness, the next level up, my opinion, is something called space traffic management. Now you're moving away from this idea of just understanding what's up there and where it's going to go and, and looking at flight risk, but you're really now thinking more holistically, uh, about global coordination of the activity what's happening how do you manage near-earth space as a resource how do you enable space commerce right and so that gets you down a path of regulation policy monitoring but also safety of flight services but it's it's more holistic uh, in nature uh, than just what today we call space situational awareness and i and there's a lot of agencies thinking about how to get after that as a problem Space domain awareness, uh, as you know, is a is a very new term. Uh, senior Air Force leadership, now Space Force leadership, coined the term in in you know within the last six months. And the idea there is, it's really the military mission regarding what's going on in space. How do I protect and defend those assets? So there are space, there's tracking components of that. There's a situational awareness component. But rather than providing safety of flight services to everyone. It's really focused on how do I protect and defend my national security space assets or things that I think are critical national infrastructure uh, in space. So it's, it's slightly nuanced, right? And It's very different than the STM mission. And you've kind of you know you've seen that in the press how there's this idea that, you know does the military just focus on what it does and do we allow another U.S. organization to take on the responsibility of space traffic management? So we we think of them like that, and you know my, my, the way I think about it might not be perfect definitionally. You know, Mariba might have a different perspective on that, but I think about spreading them out that way. It helps me as I'm talking to different individuals or different companies. Uh, I like to think in those terms because then I know how to communicate with them, how we can, you know, how we can help.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, definitions are important. I I remember when I first got into this field, I, (laughs) there's so much to learn. Like you brought up that the policy, and the overlays of the different organizations and who should take care of what. At, at a, for our general listeners, I think if you're just a regular public business person or something like that listening to this, you might think, oh, isn't this stuff all figured out? Doesn't the military track this stuff? And don't they know where everything is? And the answer is no, almost nothing in space is really figured out yet, which is a great opportunity for, for companies like yours.
0: Yeah, we, we saw an opportunity to market. To be fair, they do an incredible job, they do a really good job. Uh, they're constrained by resources they have available to them they're constrained by processes that were set up when the questions they were responsible for were different and given all those challenges, they do a really, really good job. in our case, we did see an opportunity uh, in the marketplace where there was a gap in what commercial operators near geo needed versus what they were getting from the sort of freely available service provided by by the air force and we uh, kind of doubled down and we've made our own you know we took all the profit we're making from our other lines of business and poured it into doing SSA to try to capture some of that opportunity and it's been it's been going well for us so far and we're going to continue to do that hopefully
1: Okay. Now, in our question document here, I note I had not looked at this specific thing in a little while because sometimes there'll be a gap between when I set it up and when we look back at it. And we, we've moved, we've rescheduled this once or twice. But, um, and I have some, some interrogator type questions here that I appreciate you <laughs> providing some notes in there because I'm curious. Okay, so, so, so ExoAnalytic is providing these services. Um, yep some space situational awareness, state, space traffic management and that. And I remember, um, this will have come out by the time this episode airs, uh, Dr. Jonathan McDowell, a Smithsonian um, uh, Harvard astrophysicist, has pointed out over the years that the United States has launched some spy satellites that it has not told anyone about. So you, you might think, oh, doesn't everybody know about what's up there and it's all listed? Again, No. Of. So we need these sensors, we need this network and that. Um, you are providing these services, you are taking the data in that. And I'm curious, where does that, who owns that sensor network and, and what is it made up of?
0: Yeah, so, so for us, Jason, we own and operate our own network of telescopes. Uh, all around the world we have something on the order of 35 observatories with around, you know, a little more than 300 sensors that operate all the time. Uh, we typically focus on really anything 8,000 kilometers and above. So that includes geo satellites, MEO satellites, HEO satellites, as their Apogee gets high enough for us to do. In emergencies, we'll do LEO stuff. But in general, we don't, we don't uh, do a lot of LEO stuff today. Uh, but we own and operate that network. It's, it was you know, funded uh, out of our profits or out of our own pockets. Uh, built and developed by us we wrote the software ourselves and uh, we saw it as an opportunity uh, to to make an impact number one which is what our researchers really cared about they they saw the gap in uh, sort of the challenges that our geo satellite customers had and we decided we wanted to move into that business and sort of meet that gap Uh, we've learned a lot since we started and we've even started to uh, really refine how we think about space situational awareness or space domain awareness as a, as a problem domain and how, how that affects our infrastructure and how we focus on what we build, how we build it, how we deploy it um, to do those things. But yeah, kind of your first question, we own it. I think the other, the other piece is, and since we own it, we get to focus on the characteristics that we think are important, right? And those are really market-driven uh, to us, so we really focus on, from a infrastructure or a footprint standpoint, availability, having enough sites with enough diversity to make sure that we are always up and running. You know, when a customer calls me and invariably it'll be on, you know, Father's Day at three in the morning, or it'll be on Christmas Eve at midnight, or it'll be on Thanksgiving while I'm watching, you know, NFL football, someone will call and say, hey, something's wrong. Can you help us? And if the answer is not yes, they don't ever call back. So, we started driving our availability metrics early on because of that just critical business need. If they had a problem, we needed to have assets available to go help. I think the second piece we spend a ton of time focusing on is the quality of the data. How accurate are the measurements that we take? Uh, And since we own it, we get to sort of hand select the hardware, we write the software, uh, and, and we get laser focused on data quality. And our researchers spend a ton of time making sure that it's the best in the world. So that when we, you know, we do whatever collection activity we need to do, and we pass that data to our customers, it works in their tools. It, you know, it helps them converge a really pristine orbit, so that they can do whatever they have to do next. Whether it's communicate with a lost satellite, whether it's recover, you know, from a spin, or even to do a collision avoidance maneuver, making sure they have precision orbits for the two spacecraft involved. And then the last thing that we really focus on is sensitivity, how dim of an object, how small of an object, and those things are separate, mm-hmm. but general, they're related, but how dim of a target can we find? And the issue there is if, if you're not, if you don't have proper sensitivity, if the smallest thing you can see is the size of, of a big red bus in London, then that's the smallest thing you can warn your, your customers about. Mm-hmm. If the smallest thing you can see is a baseball, then that's the smallest thing you can warn your customers about. And so we keep focusing on, on technologies that allow us to get smaller and smaller. So we're sort of in that range of a baseball, a softball, you know, maybe a soccer ball, depending on what it's made of, kind of that order of size near at GEO. And that allows us to be much, uh, much more open with our customers about the risks that they're facing from different types of objects. Uh, and so that that tends to be our focus.
1: Okay, uh, and that's really cool. So uh, you know, I immediately think of a company like Swarm that makes these tiny little small Sats, and yeah, you got to be able to optically see those. And- Hey, this is Jason Kanigan, the host of the Cold Star Project and the founder of Cold Star Technologies. I've decided to do something new. I've started doing daily update videos on who I met and what I learned the previous day in the space field. And it's a great sort of follow me thing. You can learn what I learn. I'm meeting a heck of a lot of people and learning a lot of things really fast. And the space field is really disparate. There are tons of nooks and crannies to go into and explore from legal, operational, you know, regulatory Compliance and, gosh, the end customer. Who would have thought about that, right? So you can sign up for this. If you go to coldstartech.com slash MSB, that's short for Make Space Boring, the mission we're on, then you can sign up and in your email, you will get a daily notification that the new video has been posted. I'm also thinking about doing some branded mini courses and summarizing papers as uh, I'm able to. So those will be some goodies that are in there as well. So if you're interested in that, go to coldstartech.com MSB and join us on the mission to make space boring. Now back to the interview. So the, the data is coming in from these sensors. Uh, it's transmitted somehow to the home office. It, it goes into the big computers and then the software does what? Is it, is it machine learning, data science stuff, uh, or is it software like, wait, the predicted orbit is this, and this is deviating from that, and we better sound an alarm. What kind of stuff is going on?
0: I, I, think, it, I think the answer is yes, yes, and yes, <laughs> right? So <clears throat> if, if you just start at the simplest level and say, we have 350 robot employees spread <laughs> around the world. The software has to tell them what to do so we would call that command and control at the simplest level right how do they know what to do when to do it etc and then once they're doing whatever it is they do in this case taking pictures of the night sky those images have to be processed so there's a whole processing chain for turning pictures into measurements and then once they become measurements that's really when the fun starts right you turn those measurements into orbits you turn right you turn all, that, the, all the orbits into a catalog. From there, you can look at changes in behavior. You can start to roll that catalog forward in time and see if there are any risks. And we just try to keep it simple. It's kind of like the, the whole sort of, if you were just to wrap up in one idea, the, the suite of tools, if you don't measure it, you can't manage it. So we have a lot of our software stack is really to make sure we can take as many Really accurate measurements as possible. And then the, the next bit is if you can't predict it, then you don't understand it. And so we have an entire software stack that is designed to help us predict or roll that information forward because that's where the decision making comes in for our operators. And, uh, you know, prediction is hard, especially about the future. Uh, so, you know, we spend a lot of time working on those tools and making sure that we really understand current state. What happened in the past? Can we take those two things together, roll it forward and figure out based on understanding what's the most likely course of events going forward? Is there any risk that we see based on sort of nominal? And then if we see any changes from what we would expect, can we update our customers about that so they can take some action?
1: Okay, Clint, th- this question just struck me then as I'm hearing more and more about what you do. How would you contrast what you do with
0: the Leo Labs? So, we typically focus on higher altitudes, so okay. 8,000 kilometers and above. So, that's MEO. Mm-hmm. I think that's where, you know, so the things that are about 8,000 kilometers, I think in that area is something called O3B. Uh, if you've heard of that satellite constellation, sort of the next class of satellites above that are all the uh, uh, global positioning system satellites or all the GNSS satellites, so GPS, Galileo, GLONASS, etc. et cetera. And then you get above. That and then you're into geosynchronous, where all of the mm-hmm. mostly all the communication satellites, weather satellites are are at up there. We tend to focus on that part of the or on those orbits, so those higher altitudes. That is our sweet spot, and that's where we focus. Leo Labs, with their radars, is focusing on low Earth orbit things right. that are closer to Earth, and I think they kind of focus from the ground to about 2,000 kilometers is kind of their the area that they focus on. We we don't typically do Leo. We can on demand. In general, we it, as a as a course of sort of day to day operations, we don't. Um, from a technology perspective, nothing prevents us from doing that. That's really just a business decision. Today, we have found uh, more value for us, and we're a small business, so we can only go see who we can see. Uh, to date, we found Geo to be a better market for us, so we, so we haven't made that that transition. And they're doing a good job, right? So they. Mm-hmm. they Good job in their area we 're doing a good job in our area, so we're, you know right now there's no there's no incentive for us to try to go and do anything down there it's interesting what's what's happening in leo and that tends to be where they focus and we tend to focus higher
1: okay very cool so niche down. And, uh, and with Leo, it's in the name. So, okay. Right. I'm curious if there is anything missing, you've had this experience. Now you've been with the company for like seven, to eight years now. It's been a long time. Um, is there anything in the ground stations or the sensor equipment that you wish existed that you don't have or is everything great?
0: Uh, actually, uh, in terms of hardware, uh, there are other industries driving the hardware for our business. And so telescope manufacturing is, is really good. You know, in fact, if you were to go to Italy, if we could steal Galileo's telescope and connect a camera to it, it would work just fine. And it's, you know, it's hundreds of years old, but modern telescopes are, you know, they're manufactured well. They... They hold up to weather well. So from a hardware perspective, they do well. The camera technology is really being driven by other industries, right? Sony, Canon, they're, they're, they're just, you know, printing gobs and gobs and gobs of cameras. So we can just exploit the advances that they're making from their R and D budgets and then compute technology. Again, other industries are driving uh, the need for fast, stable compute. And we're just exploiting that. And what we do is we write custom built software that enables, uh, Modern well-built telescopes with modern well-built cameras with modern high-end compute to do amazing things so we're, we're sort of taking advantage of uh, All the gains that other industries are pouring into the technology that's required to do what we do uh, now But then our expertise is software So, you know, we are the best in the world at focal plane processing the exploitation of those pictures uh, fast accurate sensitive uh, and that but again, that's our that's been our life's work for a long time and what we did was, I'm trying to even think from a timeline perspective, a bunch of things converged all around 2008, 9, 10. Um, our CEO, a couple of our founders, their life's work has been focal plane processing uh, or image processing mm. or a different domain altogether. They did it for missile defense for years and years and years. Um, as our company grew, we added a team of people who have been doing studies and analysis for the US Air Force. And they kept coming back to the air force and study after study, after study saying, you know, the the most critical investment you can make is in space situational awareness. Uh, The one that comes to mind is a debris study we did where we basically, the findings were the most cost effective and the absolute single most effective thing, irrespective of cost was to reduce the uncertainty in the orbits around the debris population. Mm. And, We looked at those, and there was a sequence of studies like that. We looked at those results, and our CEO, CTO, our VP of Engineering all said, I think we have written the the software that makes this possible as long as the hardware is good enough. And so we went and found some commercial off-the-shelf, telescopes, cameras, and computers. And our CEO, in fact, the, the telescope number one was our CEO's son's telescope. And if you don't know what happens with a telescope, if you buy it for your son, it becomes a place to hang their clothing after you find the moon, you find Mars, you stop looking through it. So his telescope was a a coat hanger. His wife's DSLR camera connected them together, knew what to do with them, started taking pictures and then ran it through our processing chain. And sure enough, we were tracking satellites. And so we made the decision. I think we have the stack ready to go move into this business in a big way. And the real challenge that we wanted to attack was scale. Hmm. So, you know, we're at 300 telescopes. By contrast, the U.S. Air Force's Space Surveillance Network has nine telescopes as their kind of frontline system. They have other telescopes in the Air Force that they do things with, but they have nine as their frontline. So we have more than 30x, the number. So the real focus was once we solved the image processing piece, was the rest of the technology on either side of that, the command and control and automation on one end and the exploitation and processing on the other, that allowed us to scale in a massive way, right? That allows us to, when the phone rings, we're always available to go and, and, and look at what our, our customers are doing. Okay. Right now, they think- even call.
1: I'm going to have a ground station expert on at some point in the near future, and I'm going to corner him and ask him some
0: serious questions.
1: <laughs> out of this That's so yeah. a field I don't know anything about. So.
0: Different than a, a telescope system. Right. So. Right. We may have a different opinion. Exactly.
1: Well, I could see a little overlap in our next question here. Now, um, some folks may not know on the YouTube channel, if, especially if all you've ever done is listen to this show as an audio there is a youtube version um, with video just go to cold star technologies on youtube just search for that yeah. and i have a space policy playlist oh. and this this next it, it as i was like oh my gosh you know so i try and chunk them out it's not just the long list of 100 and whatever episodes like it is on uh on an audio platform and so This question really fits into the space policy area and will allow me to include this episode into that list. So we had uh, some people we know went before the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology uh, public meeting this week. It was called Space Situational Awareness, Key Issues in an Evolving Landscape. And thank you for bringing this to my attention again, because I've seen all the posts that uh, I read Dr. Jaw's. Um, 15 pages of Larry <laughs> was saying on there, and they talked about you know, a bunch of different options for how to address the the space traffic management. And you know, do we let a civil agency lead this or something else? And so, what is Exo Analytics? Um, what are you bringing to the table to help out commercial companies in this area? Whew.
0: That's a lot to unpack yeah. but just for an advertisement for your YouTube channel. If, if folks watch, they will see a couple of handsome men on today's episode. <laughs> I guess that'll be the teaser for those just listening in today. Uh, maybe I'll just take a stab at space traffic management yeah. in general and then talk about what, what our role in it is. So I think the first and maybe the most interesting and most encouraging thing about it is there's real, you know, the swirl, the amount of dialogue is really encouraging. Because I think not only the U.S. government, which is you know what the House was talking about yesterday, but I think globally, governments have realized that we need to really focus on better understanding and managing the behavior of space traffic to preserve space as a resource. There's a ton of value that space systems provide terrestrially can make a lot of things better. You know, not only, you know, we benefit from you know I don't I don't even I don't even know how to drive to the nearest grocery store because I use GPS to do it you know but that's that's one example there are myriad examples of the benefits of space services and I think uh, all nations are kind of really understanding the impact and potential impact of the loss of space as a resource I think the second thing that's going on I think especially with you know the announcement of the mega constellations for lack of a better way to describe uh, Starlink, Kuiper, et cetera. Uh, I think people in in government, beyond the practitioners like us, like we've seen this coming, but I think government officials are starting to realize the complexity and the scale of this problem is just growing at a rate that is faster than governments typically operate. And I think there's a sense that if we don't get out in front of this as a nation or as a global enterprise, the situation is going to get past us, and we're not going to be able to recover. We're not going to be able to catch up either with sensing infrastructure or processing infrastructure to do a good job of managing space flight safety in a way that allows us to continue using space the way we'd like to. So I think those are kind of like the first two big things that are exciting about that. When I look at what we do, uh, you know, we've been participating in SSA or or SDA or SST, you know, sort of those other terms for for years and years um and that and we understand those very well space traffic management is moving that into a different domain uh mentally really i guess i kind of said it before focus on policy uh, regulation potentially monitoring potentially enforcement that's a different suite of services uh, none of which are militarily you know are, are, are military related per se and so it I th- and I think the recognition that those aren't necessarily military functions are going to allow us to move the problem away from uh, what we would call national defense sensors. Right? Nations have their, you know, the U.S. has them. The UK, every country has their own sensing infrastructure to monitor things that they care about. Spacefaring nations have infrastructure to monitor space traffic. And today, those are the, you know, primary sources used to produce the catalog, uh, for example. And you know, going forward, I don't think that has to be the case. And I use us as a good example. We're not hindered by that limitation. We use our own sensors, we produce our own catalog, we produce our own suite of alerts, and, and, and we have our own processes and our own people doing that work. And so we're unencumbered by some of those challenges. And so as, you know, as I was listening to the, talk yesterday, to the talks yesterday, I think, you know, and, and we're gonna participate with a lot of those speakers, we, we know them all well and we're trying to communicate to them what, uh, uh, what we think should happen. Uh, commercial companies uh, have a lot more flexibility to impact if you're talking about space traffic management versus talking about SDA, which gets into right protection and defense. Governments are going to want to have the capability to do that on their own with or without us, I think. But the preservation of, of space as a resource, I think we're all involved and one of the things that that I'm encouraged by, you know, when we started a few years ago, this and every once in a while we'll run into people that will say this: we've got to have sovereign capability, we've got to have sovereign sensors. And I think that that dialogue was driven by the sort of mixing of the traffic management function versus this domain awareness or say or, or spacecraft protection function. Mm-hmm. But as you move to space traffic management. I'm hearing and I'm trying to help change the dialogue too. I need dedicated capabilities. I need things that I can know will be there when I need them. Mm -hmm. The good thing about commercial companies is that's just how we just contract for that. You just write a service level agreement and we will tell you our availability. We'll tell you our sensitivity. We'll tell you our revisit rate. We'll tell you which targets we're going to track. Right. Or you say, this is what I need. And we say, well, this is what it will take for us to go and do that. And it's a fundamentally different, uh, structure than, say, the, to sort of the classic requirements-driven process that a military might have or a government might have, where, you know, we look at the opportunities and say, man, we can really go do a bunch of good things here. We can invest our resources and our time and our effort into attacking that problem. And then, you know, legislators or whomever can just say, well, I need some of that to do what I'm responsible for, Can you guarantee me access to these services? And we'll say, yes, we can. We'll write a contract that says if we can't deliver, you don't have to pay. That's a big deal. That's a fundamental switch. And so, you know, as I was listening to the conversation yesterday, and I've alluded to this a couple of times, you know, governments as they're kind of going through the calculus on on STM, they're really working a continuum. You know, at, at the highest level, it's policy. Next level is it's guidance, you know. Maybe it's not, you know, it's not policy. And they say, well, okay, after that, maybe regulation, and then enforcement. And those are big ideas that are maybe, you know, that's beyond what a little company like us. I mean, we don't, we don't participate. We can participate in that discussion, but we, you know, don't have a huge stake in that game. It impacts us, but that's that's the that's a field for lawyers and politicians and, and others. Where we focus and, and how we think about this is, what is our contribution? Our contribution is real simple. How do we drive the technology? How do we drive the technology solutions that enable us to observe more things more frequently with better data so that we can you know, measure them so we can manage them, be able to learn how to predict them so we you know, understand them well enough to predict their behaviors going forward. And if you can do that, then you can start to collapse a ton of the uncertainty in that problem space, right? So a lot of the issues are, if if I don't know where you are to within 100,000 kilometers, well, I really don't know where you are. If I know where you are to within 10 meters, well, that's about how big your spacecraft is. So I feel pretty good about, I know where you are. So, you know, that's one part of the problem. The other is, where will you be in 24, 48, 36 hours, or even a year from now? Can I predict that far out? Well, the longer I can make that tail and still do it very accurately, the better I can plan for how to deal with what's going on, right? So if it's a collision avoidance situation, that's simple. If it's re-entry, that's simple. Right. So we can you can start to work from the problem. So that's kind of what we think. If you're gonna, you know, if the US is gonna get tied to policy, regulation, and enforcement, then we wanna make sure that we have the technology in place to help them do that. Right. If you say this is the standard, how can I observe that people are meeting the standard or not? Mm -hmm. That's where we're going to focus. You say these are the rules of the road that everybody should play by. We want to be able to monitor it and we can say, look, here's all the roads. Here's all people that are off the road. Here's all people that are on the road and let you go from there and, and know what that landscape is. And as we engage in those conversations, we're just letting them know what the state of the art is. We talk to people about where we're going in the future so that they can plan, right, because they're not going to write a policy for today. It takes years and years and years to get things like that written. So how do they write something that's flexible, that meets the needs of today, but more importantly, works 15, 20, 25 years into the future?
1: Well, I think that should work out pretty well. (laughs) At least in the United States, they tend to not write everything down and they tend to act a little slower than you want in a way, unlike the Europeans who really want to write everything down in detail. Um, and they've got good reasons for that, you know they've had a couple of wars <laughs> through their their area. but I think that I, I am certain that by developing the capability to collect this data and and be able to share it, um, you're going to get sovereign customers like that. I think they're going to be fine with it, but only after the data is made available and it's sort of a fait accompli, like here it is, it actually exists, if my memory's not faulty, ISI is an example of this, where they, they put up, the, the satellites created the capability and then governments went, oh, we'll buy that data. You know, we're not, we don't, now that it's there, well, I guess we might as well and there's no more argument about it.
0: Well, some, sometimes we argue, but yeah, we're, we, we, we've built ours and we're hoping that everybody comes, right? Right. <laughs> The life the <laughs> well, <world.
1: laughs> it's this field of dreams maybe, <laughs> yeah. um, but I think there's a little more reality here than I that.
0: It's business model, but uh, yeah. again, we had a, a bunch of passionate guys and gals, so uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed, but we- yeah,
1: I think I think it'll work out. You can't afford to be second best. You need to be first, and that requires speed. Now if you're thinking that growth is supposed to be slow and steady, Frankly, the way I was taught back in the 90s in the operations management and business administration programs, you are too slow. We have to adapt. And in space, it's no different than anywhere else. People like to think they're special in space, and it is fun, all the stuff we get to work on. But business is business. The fundamentals nowadays are conservative growth is not good. You need to run as fast as you can, And risk outstripping your supply lines, which means in our world, using up the capital that we've got. That's a risk. But there is no prize for second place. There certainly is no prize for third. If you want to scale operationally fast, come talk to us at Cold Star Tech. We are the process experts for scaling fast. Now back to the interview. So um, I want to wrap up with a couple of, uh, a look at a couple of technical terms that you have used. Um, the first one is anomaly detection, being a, a data science company and, uh, and knowing all about, you know, our regression analysis and all that kind of thing. To me, anomaly detection means looking for outliers And that. What does it mean for you and, and how do you use it?
0: I'm going to try not to do it too science if that's okay, Jason. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll,
1: I would I'll go as science as you want. Uh, Some of the listeners want that. <laughs> so,
0: well, well, I tell you what, for yeah. any listener that wants it more science-y, uh, hit me up <laughs> after the podcast <laughs> and I'll try to answer it uh, okay. uh, in general terms first. So anomalies sort of at the grossest level, I would say, are just behaviors that we consider outside the norm, right? And so we're we're looking at anomalies daily, multiple anomalies on a daily basis. And we've been, you know, we're able to do that because we've been watching pretty much continuously. I think we've been operating 24 seven since Thanksgiving day of 2013. So that's going on a little over six years now, five, six years. And so we've got this long, long tail of historic data. And then we have, again, 300 or so telescopes out collecting data continuously every day. And so that's sort of the foundation. And so, you know, if you think about what anomaly detection or change detection is, it's, you have to have a real deep informed baseline Mm -hmm. built on that backlog of data. So one approach would be I can form orbits on objects and if they all happen to be dead, so asteroids are a good example. They're just out there, they're subject to the old gods, the sun, the moon, Jupiter, you know, they're just out there floating. We understand the physics very, very well. And so if once we get a, a really good orbit on you, we can predict your position many, 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 many years in the future with, with pretty high confidence. So as you get closer to the earth, you know, the earth becomes much more dominant in the, in the physics models that you have. There are a bunch of little features of the earth, but we can still, unless for geo-optics or, or things in graveyard, we can predict with certainty where dead things are gonna be with high confidence, maybe not certainty, but with high confidence, where they're gonna be over long periods of time. And so if you were just using orbits, anything that was dead within reason, you can do a good job on. So the issue is with man-made spacecraft, humans are involved and they're making changes, they're doing maneuvers. And so those cause changes to sort of that simplified understanding, that simple model, I'm just gonna propagate using you know physical, physical forces. Now I've gotta to try to figure out your behavior. Well. You know so we can start identifying those changes in behavior but most of those are benign honestly right most behavior changes to an orbit propagating model are human driven and they're mostly expected i'll give you a couple examples a station keeping maneuver they're happening sometimes continuous for some satellites they're weekly sometimes they're daily sometimes sometimes they're every couple of weeks but those are predictable expected behaviors that are changes that happen all the time. So we wouldn't even call that an anomaly, but you've got to be able to identify when those occur to update your forward prediction. But those are just changes. Another one would be like uh, uh, seasonal yaw flips. We see these changes in brightness uh, in spacecraft and how they present to us. And periodically, our operators will do a yaw flip to, I guess, to change how solar panels are pointed at the sun or well, they have some rationale for it and it sticks out like a sore thumb in our data. And that's a, again, that's a change, but I wouldn't call it an anomaly, right? So you have to handle all of the things that are happening as expected, all the changes that you should expect and the things that are left then are what we would call anomaly, right? They're either unexpected or they're expected, but they're not normal, right? So you, yeah, your station kept, but you did it way different than before, uh, or they pose some potential risk like, hey, you did a station keeping maneuver, but that decision puts you at risk. Those are where we start thinking about anomalies. So without, you know, that's not very statistically, that's just a mental model of how we think about the problem. And so we see examples like that all the time. Large station change maneuvers, they don't happen very often, you know, but a, a geo operator will move from one slot where they've been operating for years and years, raise their orbit, drift across the sky and then lower into another slot. That's very unusual at the time of high risk for them. You know, we'll spot that right away. Uh, you know, if there's an issue on board, we'll see a spacecraft start tumbling. We'll know within within a few seconds that something unusual is happening. Within a few minutes, we know something really bad is happening. We've seen several debris generating events. Those are super unusual. We've seen new objects, right? that That's an alert too. That's an anomaly to us. Um, object getting too close to each other or a conjunction warning. Those are the kind of things that that we just bucket under this class of thing called an anomaly. Uh, Now how we do those, there's statistical processes that for some of it, there's just old school orbit determination processes for some of it. And there's some machine learning processes for some of it. And so it depends on the particular case, which tool is being used to identify the issue. But the important bit is, you wanna identify them, you wanna not miss any, we would call that a leak. And you don't want to alert to things that aren't real. We call that a false alarm. And so our tools are really tuned to manage leaks and manage false alarms so that when we reach out to our customer and say, hey, something's going on, they have high confidence that it's going on. <laughs> and the same thing, if we don't call them, we want them to have high confidence that things are okay. Have right? you ever been to a, a, a driven your car up to a train track, Jason? Mm-hmm. You ever been there uh, when the arms went down and the lights were flashing, but there was no train coming?
1: Yeah. It has happened. Mm-hmm.
0: You call that a false alarm.
1: Yeah. Yep. Right. There's your false positive. Yep.
0: Now, have you ever come up to a train track and the arms were up and there were no flashing lights and a train was going by? Fortunately, no. Right. That's a leak.
1: Yeah. And that that would that's be bad. <laughs> right. Yeah. That would be far <laughs> worse than the false positive.
0: Yeah. With our anomaly tools, mm-hmm. we're trying to yeah. actively manage both of those so that when we reach out to our customer, they understand, yes, this is a real thing. And if mm. we don't, they can be confident we're not missing it. So we really focus on on that from anomaly perspective. Hopefully that helps for those of you out there that mm-hmm. want a more sticky uh, talk about it. We can do that later. And okay. if you want to do a statisticy version, we can do that uh, some other day.
1: Right. It, it just struck me uh, to ask, what is the refresh rate? I mean, you've got cameras l- looking through telescopes and taking pictures and sending data back. Is it is it seconds, minutes, hours? What's yeah. The difference? So if
0: you were if you were in our command center right now, uh, you would see something on the order of 200 telescopes operating right now. Uh, we'd be getting we'd be streaming something on the order of 20 to 30 images. From around the world, every second or so, and the cameras—they they run varying. Uh, we have a, a mix of different kinds of cameras and telescopes, and so they run at different integration times, uh, but never, um, for any given part of the sky, never longer than a few seconds before we get a measurement back. Okay, so pretty fast. <laughs> pretty fast. Okay, of like you know, forty terabits of imagery per day, so you can probably figure out, you know, okay, that's a lot of pictures. I mean, right. they're, they're just constantly streaming, and our magic is being able to turn those 40 terabytes of pictures into uh, <laughs> yeah, a few kilobytes of human consumable information.
1: Okay. Well, let's finish up with space system modeling, simulation. Simulation is a fascinating thing for me. We're going to need more and more of it uh, for folks who who maybe are not too familiar with the picture, especially with the the mega constellations, the, the cube sats, the small sats, we're, well, still, whatever kind of satellite, we're going from a few hundred to a few thousand to then tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of these things in orbit. It's not just a slow increase, it's going to be a giant increase, and somebody's got to manage all this stuff and make sure they're not flying into each other by accident. So. For for space system modeling, what does that mean for your organization? How do you go about creating these models?
0: Whew. Well, okay, this is a this is a, this is a big topic.
1: I'll, <laughs> I'll,
0: I can say I'm an operations researcher, yeah. In part, and so any model or any simulation or any study you're trying to do should be purpose built to answer any question uh, or make help make some decision. So, having said that, I'll give you a tried and true operations research statement, which is all models are wrong some are useful so from a space system modeling perspective we want to build useful models Um, and the simplest idea of that is how do i create a representative version of this space system Mm -hmm. inside of software so that i can study it faster than real time right because if i could only do it at real time might as well build a thing and so i'm trying to create this representative model And then these models are at different levels of fidelity based on the kind of question you want to ask. So if I'm trying to model system performance and make a decision about how small of an object could I detect by changing aperture, then I have a really high fidelity model of maybe the size of the mirror, the size of the aperture, what kind of camera I put on there, what the altitude is, and I try to estimate what i would see or the size of the target i could discern at different ranges and that's one kind of question Mm -hmm. i could back all the way up and say what will be the you know what will be the impact of putting out a system of 300 of these spacecraft versus 100 of these spacecraft now i'm trying to assess some other type of effect so i might could use a lower fidelity model uh in that situation because i don't necessarily need the 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 really high-end engineering uh, on the payload itself, what I need now is something that I can scale, I can make fast architecture trades and understand what the cascading impact of that is. Uh, and if I go kind of back all the way up to my time in the Air Force, the kinds of questions we were trying to answer would be as, as, as uh, this will sound simple, but it's complex. What, if, what are the impacts of space systems on terrestrial combat? And so what is the value of more communications infrastructure in space on combat or what is the value of GPS on combat? And then the kind of questions we would have to answer in in the good old days uh, when I was a much younger man were, you know, should I buy another 10 pounds of communications capability or should I buy another 10 pounds of F-22? How can you trade those off? And the kinds of models you use that are, are called campaign models are much, much higher level, but you need to be able to represent your space system in a way that you can understand the effects that it's trying to create for you, but ultimately driving towards some decision. Do I get that bigger aperture or not? Do I get that extra 200 satellites or not? Do I put this other plane in or not? Do whatever that is. And so we think about that problem kind of pragmatically. What's the question we're trying to answer and then the nature of that question drives the fidelity of the model. And then once we understand that, we try to put a representation in place that allows us to clearly answer the question. And sometimes that requires something really Gucci in terms of modeling. And sometimes it can be very simple. Uh, hopefully that makes sense, Jason. Mm-hmm. That that was
1: that's was a great the great answer.
0: answer. Again, if, we, if, uh, if there's some folks out there that want to get real sciency, uh, we can do that over a beer sometime.
1: All right. Well, let's wrap up. Uh, this is Clint Clark. He's the vice president of First Impressions. Remember what <laughs> that is at Axel Analytics Solutions. Those are first questions that we covered. Uh, how can people get in contact with you? Where's the best place to go? Is it website, LinkedIn, all the above?
0: Yeah, Jason, uh, for getting in touch with me, I think the easiest is you can hit me on LinkedIn, look up Clinton Clark exoanalytic solutions i'll be easy to find there uh you can always email me clinton.clark exoanalytic.com you can check out our website exoanalytic.com bunch of fun stuff you can see a little bit more about what we're doing as a company uh look out for some look out for this podcast on there we'll probably hang it off the uh off of the uh, news page uh, but yeah, I'm happy to talk to, uh, any of your listeners anytime, Jason, certainly looking forward to uh, follow-up with you next chance we get, uh, this was fun for me. So thank you. Mm-hmm. You bet. Thanks a lot.